0: Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. And joining me today are Leonora Walters, Personal Finance Editor, and Mike Curley, Manager of the Far East Income Investment Trust and the Janus Henderson Asian Dividend Income Fund. Before we get going, I would like to invite anyone who wants their own financial situation assessing to take part in the Investors Chronicle Portfolio Clinic. If you're interested, please Google Investors Chronicle Portfolio Clinic and go to the website or email portfolio.clinic at ft.com making sure you get equity income from around the world is generally a sensible strategy, diversifying the risks and eking out as much cash as possible from the world's shareholder-friendly companies. UK stocks and the funds that buy them generally populate our income portfolios, but investors have been steadily turning to other sources, and one of them is Asia. Mike, uh, your vehicle's all invest in Asia Pacific extra pan, uh, although with some Japanese exposure, um, and for income. And um, you're best known for providing quite a decent yield. So um, I suppose the first question is, uh, why Asia?
1: Well, I think Asia's got some uh, advantages over the rest of the world. O- obviously, probably the, the most um, known one is growth. Um, and that's slightly unusual, I suppose, for income investors to talk about growth. Um, But with Asia, I think you get high and sustainable yields plus the ability to grow those yields because the underlying companies are are growing, the economies are growing, um, and historically Asia has paid low dividends and ultimately will pay high dividends. So by investing in Asia, you get the exposure to that underlying growth plus the dividend growth that goes with it.
0: Is is, is now, uh, I suppose, talking about the present, just looking at uh, yields from last year, so Asia was about 2.7, I believe? Um, but that's still kind of below the UK's 4.8, the Europe's 4, um, 3.3 from LATAM, so like other emerging markets. So although, you know, dividend growth is coming through, is, is now the right time? Should we not be waiting for this dividend growth to come through before we can start taking the the risk that Asia holds?
1: It's a good point. Um, yes. When you look at the headline number, 2.7 doesn't seem a lot. Um but that kind of hides a lot of differences that, take, uh, that uh, occur across the region. So if you look at Australia, Australia is similar to the UK, and obviously that comes within our, our remit. Then you look down the other end of the curve and you've got India, which yields just over one, um, and China somewhere in the middle. Um, so you get this mixture of developed Asia and emerging Asia. Um, so when we look at the uh, the whole universe we like to put them in two different baskets high and sustainable yield which tends to be more the developed markets and then the the real potential for dividend growth which tends to be the more emerging economies whether that's you know China uh, Thailand Indonesia etc cetera, etc cetera. so yes the headline looks lower than the rest of the world but that's also based on the fact that actually payout ratios are only 30% whereas the UK's is far far higher so it's the potential which is interesting
0: so um, how have payout ratios changed over the, the last few years? Now?
1: Well, again, that's another good question. And if you looked at a graph, yeah, it just shows its straight lining. So actually, the story of, of rising payout ratios hasn't really materialised in the last 10 years. But again, you need to look behind that number because... Actually, power ratios have stayed the same because things like Alibaba and Tencent have come into the Asia-Pacific indices and they pay zero dividends. So actually, if you took those out and looked at the underlying trends, then the underlying trends are, are positive and kind of what we'd expect in the development of an emerging dividend region.
0: OK, um, so moving on to, to your, your trust specifically,
1: 2018,
0: um, obviously, it was an interesting year for Asian equities generally, as I'm sure uh, many of our listeners are aware um your investment trust um share price performance of about around -9%, which was better than the minus -11% from the MSCR Asia Pacific ex Japan index but slightly below the average for your sector the AIC Asia Pacific ex Japan sector. Mm. Um so what was the what was kind of driving forces in in 2018? Uh
1: well The driving forces for us um, uh, were basically the first nine months uh, when we had heightened volatility. um, There were certain things we had in the portfolio that really worked for us. Um, We had a very positive view for most of the year on energy and oil pricing, uh, and that worked well. Uh, And we also liked the materials sector. Um, You could say those two uh, interlinked. So that worked great for nine months. Then clearly when we got into uh, October, November, the oil price – Came down quite a long way, and that took the materials sector with it. So, our outperformance of the of other our peers and the index was mitigated in that in that final quarter, mainly because of that.
0: Slightly longer term figures as well. have is again below below the index and, and below peers on, on on a three year basis. Mm. Um, what are the what are the reasons for this? I feel like we might have touched on them earlier when you mentioned the tech stocks. A
1: uh, well, the, the, yeah, I mean the tech stocks were a 2018 thing because obviously they—I mentioned that in the previous question—but actually we underweight things like 10 Cent and Alibaba. We don't own them because they don't yield, uh, and they were doing really really well through most of 2016 and 17, and then came through a bit of a correction from the second quarter of 2018 onwards. So that benefited us in 2018, but clearly there was quite a lot of damage in the two previous. Years from from that sector becoming uh, by far the best performing um, sector, and when you go we look back three years, obviously we've had um, uh, a tilt towards China as well, and, and China has come under pressure in the last two to three years. So on a relative basis to the index. Um, it's those factors which have really impacted us.
0: Okay. I was uh, kind of yeah, looking through uh, your, your fund, as, as one would. Um, it seems to have quite a, a value tilt. Um, but what I wanted to ask you was whether this, because you know, a value tilt can be misleading. It can be um, high dividend yield, which is obviously something you would expect in an income fund, or it can be you know, a value manager believing that value will outperform over the longer term. Um, so I suppose my question is, where do you, where do you stand on that one?
1: Uh, we definitely have. I, I definitely have a value... Bias. Um, I, I I like growth, um, but I just don't like paying for it. Um, so generally, the, the portfolio trades at a discount in terms of price to earnings a- against the index. Um, so we try and identify companies which we think there is real value there, um, and the catalyst to realise that value being additional cash flow and dividends. So yes, we we have a value tilt. Okay, uh, and I suppose what kind of what kind of sectors does that lead you into then? well people try to pigeonhole styles value growth yeah. but these cha- change through a cycle. So at some points in the cycle materials and cyclicals can be value. Other parts they can be growth. So in the last one to two years actually materials and energy we feel have been actually value uh, value orientated companies uh, because earnings were improving but valuations were cheap. So um, that's what led us to that sector in particular.
0: So Value managers have a have a process and defining value. Um, What's your what's your stock picking process? And I suppose the second part of that is then how do you then assess? Um, dividend growth and sustainability in your
1: holdings well it, it all comes down to cash flow we are income managers i am an income manager these are income funds um and i believe that cash is what pays you dividends not earnings uh so i'm looking for companies with sustainable cash flow and that i think is um what prompts dividends uh, to be paid by the companies and it's also what prompts companies to up their dividend payout ratio so on one side of the portfolio, we're looking for steady and sure income, which is growing, maybe not uh, exponentially, but growing slowly and steadily over time. And that will pay us our dividends. And then on dividend growth, we're looking for companies where the growth in earnings or changes in management um, ideals, etc., about dividend payouts, we'll see that dividend payout ratio rise and, and dividend growth comes with it.
0: Okay. And so how much do you look at the, the kind of dividend cover of the underlying stocks and I I suppose the question is um, how important in this scenario is cash flow yield because obviously I know it's a common valuation metric that's used but
1: Um, I mean we don't uh, we don't pigeonhole ourselves into any particular uh, valuation style I mean free cash flows for us is very important Uh, and when we value companies we tend to use discounted cash flow as as the model by which we do it but for us it's all about forecasting what what the uh, future cash flows will like to be for a company uh, by using our own judgment about the industry the the, structure, the management all this stuff and then discounting those future cash flows and trying to get a present value for that stock so the value of cash to us is all important
0: and so you mentioned uh, both china and australia earlier uh, they are two of your largest exposures a bit of a kind of a barbell approach i suppose to, to yields um is there a, a macro rationale for this or is, is this stock picking
1: coincidence uh, or everything we do is is bottom up so I mean, I've got views clearly on what I think about China and what I think about Australia. Um, uh, But but ultimately, what we own in those two countries is based on the fact that we like uh, uh, the companies and we like the potential. I would say that our position in China is much more the dividend growth, whereas our positions in Australia are much more about dividend yield and sustainable yield. Um, From an economic standpoint, we're much more upbeat about China than we are Australia. China is, uh, to us, the cheapest market in the region, uh, the most misunderstood market in the region, uh, with the most potential. Australia, we think, domestically, is having a bit of a struggle. Um, There are some areas which are interesting, there's some very good companies, which is why we own it. Uh, But from an economic standpoint, much favor uh, China over Australia.
0: Okay, Um, I noticed in China you, 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 well, you don't favor, I suppose you own some some state-owned enterprises. these tend to be avoided by a lot of other fund managers. It's, it's, um, it's well, not a brave call, but an unusual call, I, I would say. Um, what's the rationale for, for these? Is um, is this an income play, or is these is this growth play? Well,
1: I, I think some of the, the state-owned enterprises in China again are, are, are misunderstood, um, and the people who avoid them will say, "Well, look, okay, you know, you, as a minority shareholder in a state-owned company, you're never going to be the focus of the company's direction, etc." Um, and I, I tend to agree with that. But there are times when, and I believe that's currently now, when actually if you invest alongside the state and you understand what the state is trying to achieve, then actually there's a lot of value in these companies. So in China, for example, the state of enterprise reform and the promotion of certain industries and to have uh, national champions – um, is actually sits along our side of our goal in terms of improving the profitability, the efficiencies of these companies, the cash flow, and ultimately the dividends. There are other state-owned enterprises which don't fit into that, and we tend to avoid those. So uh, it's a question of being pragmatic rather than just wagging our finger and saying, no, 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 we're not going to invest in state-owned enterprises. Okay.
0: Is, is it fair to say that state-owned, ed- well,
1: state-owned enterprises
0: probably aren't looking for, for dividends, or they are looking for the company to achieve something rather than for that? company
1: to be uh, an income source the state and enterprises you're right uh, their major goal will be to fit in with the with the communist party's uh, policies and five-year plans but that doesn't mean necessarily there's no uh, opportunity for growth in those areas so the current five-year plan is is promotion of certain industries over others um, okay so you know that can really w- work for you
0: Yep, fair enough. Moving on, as I mentioned earlier, the, the trust and the fund both both yield uh, quite a lot. So the trust is going to, be able to yield about 6.6%. Bearing in mind that the underlying market is only yielding 2.7%, um, can you can you talk us through how you managed to extrapolate
1: 6. yes. 66 for this, uh, this yes. market? Um, yes, it's, um, it's, it's nothing magical, I can assure you. Um, basically, uh, well, the underlying portfolio will yield uh, about 5.1%. Uh, one year forward yield about 55 um, but what we use around the edge of the portfolio is the very selective use of options. So we will sell either put or call options around our investment decisions. Could you, uh, for, the, for the sake of the, the listeners, perhaps just explain uh, what a put and call option is? Yeah, well, basically, uh, uh, well, either of these um, types of derivatives uh, are basically options whereby you, if you're selling a put option, you're selling the option to buy the stock to a third party at a price and a point in the future and a call option is the other way around. And you can set those various uh, levels away from the current price and over a, any length of time. Uh, we tend to do it within 5 to 10% of the current share price and up to three months in advance. And what this does is for us, it kind of focuses our minds. So we have target prices on everything we own in, in, the, in the portfolio. But if we say, well, okay, the stock we think has got 10% upside to our target price. We will potentially write an option which matches has a strike price which matches our target price. So whether we sell it through an option or sell it in the market because we think it's fully valued, it's the same decision. But obviously, by doing that, we get a premium that goes into our revenue reserve, gets paid out as part of our shareholders, and that can add anywhere between 50 or half a percent to one and a half percent to our yield per annum.
0: Okay. So is It's a strategy I know that is um, is common for open-ended funds. Um, this is how you know the, the enhanced income funds tend to do this. I was quite surprised to see it in an investment trust, though. Um, it's not something um, I was aware that happened in investment trusts on the basis that you investment trusts can obviously sell capital to to boost yield as well. So.
1: Well, well, we could do that absolutely. The, the, you know, it is part of the, the regulations these days to um, uh, to allow investment companies and investment trusts to pay out of capital to support um, dividends. That's not what we do. That's a different decision, because ultimately, if you pay out of capital over time, the capital will go to zero if you want to take a long enough year. Everything we do in this product is to maximise the income without affecting the capital performance, which is why we don't pay out of capital. We use much more efficient ways, we think, of sustaining that dividend.
0: Okay, this actually leads on to my next question. Um, So looking at slightly longer term performance, um, Heffel's growth, obviously, on the basis that it doesn't invest in growth areas, has know, since you took charge in 2007, like falling behind the index and the peers. So I'm just wondering, for argument's sake, at what point would it have been more beneficial to perhaps tone down on the income strategy and go into the growth strategy and then use the growth to provide income? Because you say you can do that in an investment trust.
1: Yeah, um, I, it, it's a good question. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer of, of the power of income compounding over time reinvesting your dividends back into what you invest in over time and that really impacts your total return over time. I think what you've got to remember is, you know, if we look over 10 of the last 12 years, since 2009, we've actually had a bull market. Some of that's favoured income when interest rates were coming lower. But generally, there's been some areas which uh, haven't really benefited and growth has been to the fore rather than income. Um, And I think when you look at the income sector in general, uh, a lot of it's probably not quite done as well, certainly in the last three to four years, as maybe uh, it, it you would expect in, in in these more volatile times.
0: OK. Um, so going back to regional allocations, uh, you, you, we kind of talked about this earlier where you were saying that you have different markets providing different things in mm. terms of Australia providing high yields and China providing growth, etc., so how does how do you expect your regional allocations to change over time and kind of how does this fit into how Asian businesses are implementing dividend policies
1: um I think we we will be led by what 's going on at the company level. Um, you can make some broad brushed assumptions about certain sectors which will likely to have higher dividends over time. Um, you know, we've mentioned the tech sector. Um, you know, how long did it take for Apple to pay a dividend, even though they should have done? Um, and in a lot of areas, certainly like the technology sector, um, there's still this belief that if a company pays a dividend, then it's run out of growth ideas. Um, I think the world has now changed and that actually companies that accumulate cash, there's no real thing, n- real uh, uh Negativity about paying a dividend. Um, So sectors like that, I think we can embrace. I think the consumer sector, which clearly is a growth sector in the region. um, Some of these historically have been a bit expensive, but I I think these are areas which will probably become a greater proportion of, uh, uh, of, of Asian indices over time. And I think in general... China will become a greater part of indices as more and more of that market is included in MSCI and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, my final
0: question is was the the interesting aspect is if you're using uh, an Asian income fund in your kind of retirement portfolio, um, you'll be conscious of currencies. So I was just wondering about how much kind of sterling volatility affects your income strategy.
1: I mean, it, it doesn't really, I mean, it's just translation, really. Um, obviously, we're all of our assets are outside of the UK. Um, so the level of sterling. So you, you pay your dividend in, in sterling. Exactly. We do indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if if sterling weakens a lot, then that's beneficial for, for someone who for a UK investor who invests overseas because obviously once you translate those that currency back, then there's a benefit both to the capital performance and obviously to the to the income side. Um, I mean, the beauty, I suppose, of the closed-ended sector is that we have a revenue reserve, um, which is about two-thirds of a year for Henderson Far East, which means that we can kind of smooth the currency effects over time. And that's been very useful, actually, in the last three or four years, or certainly since the Brexit vote, when sterling's been really all over the place.
0: Okay. Um, so, in revenue reserve, that was uh, another mm. point I was going to come to. As you said, is about two-thirds is that, that continued you? would you expect that to be higher for a, especially a high yielding income fund that is expected by its shareholder to maintain that yield regardless of what happens in the underlying market
1: uh, the, the target is to get to a year, but there's no we're not setting a hard and fast rule as to when that must happen and you've got to remember as well that we've we, we've been trading at a premium, so we've been issuing shares. So if you issue shares and increase the shareholder base, then obviously the obligation to pay out more and more of of your revenue receive increases each year. so although we've been adding to the revenue reserve, the size of the company has grown and the obligation in terms of, of, of dividends we pay out has also grown. If that situation changes, then you'll see the payout ratio rise. But to be honest, it's it's a nice problem to have. Um, and we think two thirds of a year is 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 more than enough considering what we see in the underlying shares we invested. Okay,
0: great. Um, thanks very much for that, Mike. That was fascinating. Thank you for talking about your funder. Thank you. Another area many investors have turned to for income is alternative assets and in particular infrastructure. The asset class is dominated by investment trusts, given the very liquid nature of the investments, and many provide particularly high dividends and a relatively decent yield. But the sector has seen volatility, with trusts swinging from premiums to discounts to premiums again, all because of political uncertainty. Many trusts are reliant on either government-backed subsidies or government projects, and so can be at the whim of Westminster. Leonora, uh, uncertainty in the sector has become a bit of a staple, especially with ongoing discussions around private finance initiatives. Uh, But that aside, how did the sector do in 2018? And what was behind the performance?
2: Well, the sector did uh, surprisingly well. All the infrastructure funds, or investment trusts, I should say, made gains over 12 months to the 21st of January 2019, as much as 27.5% in the case of free infrastructure. Now, this is due to a number of reasons, which um, caused both the underlying assets and share price to increase uh, and push the premiums back up. Now, one of the reasons why these uh, trusted better last year was because um, investors have, have calmed down a bit on the political risk. The political risk being that in, um, I think it was September, October 2017, at Labour Party conference, the, uh, uh, the Labour leader said that if we get into power, he's likely to nationalise PFI schemes. So it's panic it was like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to these trusts? Will they get compensation? But uh, I think investors uh, have realised a number of things that, uh, number one, it would actually be quite expensive to do Uh, number two um, well this will only happen if Labour wins the next election and even if they do win the next election goodness knows they might have their hands tied of other things they might change policies we know what politicians are like to say one thing and do another Um, now another thing that um, investors have calmed down on is the carillon issue carillon was um a sort of construction services company now the infrastructure investments we didn't invest in carillon not at all but they invested in infrastructure projects and Car- Car- carillon provided services for some of his infrastructure um projects and when it collapsed they had to make arrangements to get new service providers, which, all right, maybe cost a bit and was a bit of a hassle, but had no massive impact. So, for example, Hickel Infrastructure Company invested in projects serviced by Carillon, and it lost a bit of capital as a result of having to find new parties to take over contracts from Carillon and the direct liabilities that Carillon had to the owners of the projects. There was another mark-to-market loss from changing the discount rate applied to those contracts but in September last year, Hickel wrote back half losses from those valuation changes and um, analysts, um, some analysts certainly are optimistic, but should be able to write back a rest of the time. And what's really important is Hickel didn't cut its dividend and neither did the other two trusts, um, INPP and Joinland Infrastructure, um, which also had projects serviced by Carlyon. So it was a bit of a non-event really. And I think investors have appreciated that.
0: OK, so it just sounds, um, sounds as if um, kind of investors were just probably a bit too cynical at the start of the year and changed their mind, I suppose, is what happens. So what has 2018's performance meant for the yields on offer?
2: Well, the yields have come down. But I think the first thing to say is a yield isn't necessarily the level of the dividend. The yield also reflects whether the share price is. Um, so these investment investors, they haven't cut their dividends. Let's make that clear. They're still paying a very attractive level of dividends. But their share prices have gone up. And if their share price goes up, um, obviously the yield um, will come down and uh, may not look as attractive. But, um, you know, in reality, what you're getting paid as an investor is um, is just as good. Now, the result of the share prices going up is that the, the premiums to NAV have also gone back up. So perhaps they're arguably not as cheap as they were.
0: Okay, um, are there any are there any trusts which are offering better value?
2: Well, I think it depends what you consider to be good value. The point is, you know, they're not risk-free; there's still risks. I mean, I think people point out that maybe nationalising PFI and PP schemes is not easy, but it's not necessarily. I mean, does not necessarily mean that it's not going to happen. You know, so there's still some risk. So. As with analysts, are looking to maybe perhaps trusts that you know compensate for you compensate you for that, e.g. price it in. So we're looking at ones maybe on um, lower valuations and a good example would be um, Hickle. Now Hickel has a lot of exposure probably the most exposure to PFI and PPP of any of them but it's on a premium to NAV when I looked this morning of about six percent and that's actually lower than quite a lot of its peers and analysts at stifle funds like it because of its one year management termination period and surprisingly, perhaps surprising, they put disappointing performance. I think what they're saying here, they're not happy that it's performed poorly. What they're saying is that last year, its share price was affected by these concerns and over longer periods aka three and five years the share price return is behind the nav return so perhaps it's better value but certainly the nav returns have continued and the dividends continued but it's maybe not as that, that's not reflected necessarily in the share price and the share price is also pricing in those risks so arguably hickle might be a bit better value
0: so, but investment trusts obviously aren't the only way to get um, access to infrastructure. Uh, now, they do you have to invest in the physical projects? Listed infrastructure is, is another way to access this sector. Um, so, these are funds that buy equities. But um, So, what are the yields like in this space? And I suppose, what are the benefits and risks of taking this route?
2: Right. Um, listed infrastructure funds are completely different beasts. Investment trusts invest directly into, well, say the, the, well, most of the investment trusts um, focus on infrastructure invest directly into infrastructure projects. Now, there are a number of funds, which are also infrastructure funds, that they do not invest in projects. They invest in shares of companies that are involved with infrastructure or implement infrastructure projects. So basically, these are global equity funds. So something completely different. Um, so main differences these funds they're investing in shares of infrastructure companies all around the world so they're global rather than with a uk focus like some of the infrastructure investment trusts they generally have an open-ended structure which um, is beneficial in that you don't get these ridiculously high premiums to nav that you get on some of the investment trusts so you're not necessarily overpaying for your assets and they mostly have um, cheaper ongoing charges, which is obviously also a good thing because uh, you don't want to overpay for your funds. On the downside, they've got lower yields. Um, I mean, that's not because they're doing badly. That's because they're not income funds. They are basically global equity, global growth equity funds, not income not income plays. So, you know, you might invest in them for like, you know, diversification, you might invest in them for growth. They're not really income funds. Another downside is they've got more exposure to equity market volatility. They invest in reasonably defensive companies so they're probably less volatile than broad global equity funds but they certainly don't act as a diversifier in your portfolio like an infrastructure investment trust that holds unlisted assets because they're just they're just specialist equity funds basically so yeah i mean i'd say those are some of the main differences with those funds
0: Okay, um, any other ways to uh, access infrastructure?
2: Yeah, well, there are a number of funds that give exposure to emerging markets infrastructure. Now, arguably, this is really a good way to do it because part of the world that needs infrastructure the most and um, is likely to build it the most is emerging markets because they've got virtually nothing in some places. So, arguably, you get the most growth here. The point is emerging markets are high risk, they've got lower levels of corporate governance, and the funds to access these are generally very niche funds, very high risk, very expensive, and to be honest, a lot of them probably aren't even available to private investors, um, and aren't easy to access. But and there's always but, you can still get exposure via some of the global listed infrastructure funds. And one of these, which the, the writer of the article in this week's magazine, a, a good freelance journalist called Cherry Raynard, she's highlighted Premier Global Infrastructure Income Fund. And this has over a third of its assets in emerging markets. Now, another way to do it is Utilico Emerging Markets Trust. This is a, an emerging markets investment trust but it specializes in infrastructure so it mainly invests in essential services or monopolies such as utilities transportation infrastructure and communications within the developing markets of Asia Latin America emerging Europe and Africa
0: okay and so in terms of this uh, utility cultures, how does that compare in terms of the diversification of benefits that we discussed uh, a little bit earlier
2: well Not greatly at all, really, because again, it's an equities fund, invests in emerging market equities. Now, the area of emerging market equities it invests in, again, it's these companies, so perhaps they're slightly less volatile than um, broader emerging markets funds. You know, it's not got tech stocks or I don't know mining stocks it's got things like utility companies but the point is they are still equities and they're still emerging market equities so it's it's not a low risk vehicle and it certainly doesn't avoid volatility so for example its share price fell seven percent in 2018 and in 2008, height of the financial crisis, its share price fell 47%, which is like way far worse than say like the FTSE All Shirt, I think, or even MSCI World. So basically it's, it's an emerg- a specialist emerging markets fund. It's volatile, it's got emerging market risks, but you know, if you've got high risk appetite and long-term investment horizon, it could be an interesting kind of slant on your emerging markets exposure. And if you're an income investor, it actually has a yield of 3%. It's quite a good income payer, but be prepared for that volatility.
0: Okay, so that's definitely a lot to think about there. Thank you very much, Leonora. Um, Right, so that uh, brought us around to talking about an investment trust that invests in Asian emerging markets. So I think that full circle is a good time to end the show. Uh, Please don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's magazine or head to the website for more about what we talked about today and how and when you should use a trust discount as a signal to buy. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.